All right. So rich people always name their boats something stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a boat. You have a yacht. Let's say nine hits a big. You have a yacht. What are you naming it? Yacht, my problem. <laughs> I know that's not what I was thinking originally, but... No, uh, y- Yacht My Problem is a good one, I actually. like Yacht My Problem. I like that. Mine would be, uh, we can pair them in tandem, yours and mine, and it's, I see what you did there. <laughs> I hate it. <laughs> I actually hate it. Is that, are these worse than the yacht we're going to talk about today? Hot take, yes, no. Uh, ours are better. Ours are better? Yeah, but we're more clever comedically than the person we're going to talk about today, I think. Might be more clever in general. I, yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah, I, I don't like to toot my own horn, okay? I yeah, don't, right. I, he loves to toot his own horn. Are you kidding me? Mm. Toot, toot. <laughs> but, I mean, I don't know. I don't think I could ever be a CEO, but if this guy could have just became a CEO, then maybe I can. I think that um, a false confidence can get people really big places. And if you just speak in vague sentences, I think a lot of people will follow you and believe in you. Wow. We're really doing something here. Yeah, we We're are. leading a revolution in what? Technology. They're like... That's right. He's like, you're like, I have a plan that will make great things. And people are like, I like that guy. He has a plan. He's going to make great things. He's going to do great things. Now... Who are we talking about today? We are ta- talking about Worldcom. Uh, so we already talked about Enron, uh, one did. of the other large company bankruptcies here in America. Yep. If you want to check that out, that's season one, episode eight. Yes. Go ahead and check it out. It's actually one of my favorite episodes that we've done so far. Uh, would definitely recommend it. That one really upset me. It did. Nina was uh, the most upset I've seen her. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, not in life, but definitely in the podcast. Definitely, definitely in the podcast. Uh, the DuPont water scandal is the only time I've seen you even close to it. Yeah. So, I was pretty upset for the DuPont water scandal. So today we're talking about WorldCom. You guys at home might have heard about it. Like I said, it's one of the largest uh, company bankruptcies ever in America. And unlike the Enron episode where we focused on maybe three or four people. Yep. That we're at Enron. Really, today we're just focusing on one. One guy. The CEO of WorldCom, Bernard Ebers. Spelt with B's. I watched a bunch of content on it and thought his name was Evers with a V for at least four hours. Yeah. I mean, Ebers, Evers. I just think Ebers is an interesting name. name. It's a weird name. Uh, Now, Bernard Ebers was born uh, on August 27th, 1941 in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. He's a Canadian. Uh, To Kathleen and John Ebers, the latter of which was a traveling salesman, and both were devout Christians. And that's where we take a turn. The, the traveling salesman part? He just wants to se- he just wants to sell some vacuums, Nina. First of all, if someone knocks on my door and is like, knock, knock, Nina, buy this, I'm like, no. This was like this... the 40s, though. Like, there's okay, no Amazon. There's no true. home shopping network. The only time anybody ever did that, one time I was at my grandma's house and these people came up to her, her door and were like, knock, knock, we have meat in our trunk. Do you want to buy some? And then they opened up the trunk and there was meat in it. And my grandma was like, no, I don't want to buy your trunk meat. I'd buy it depending on the price. It doesn't matter. Uh- <laughs> it's a good way to get salmonella or E. coli. And 
salmon at a discount. Uh, and the, the shits. The Ebers family bounced around a lot uh, doing work for the church in California, New Mexico, and then finally back to Canada when Ebers was a teenager. Uh, but after high school, Ebers did briefly attend the University of Alberta and then Calvin College before finding his forever home uh, in Mississippi at the Mississippi College on a basketball scholarship. Between those schools, though, when he was bouncing around, he did find work as both a milkman, a fun little a job that's not a thing anymore, no, it's and not. a bar bouncer, a fun little thing that is still a job. Uh Post-COVID, not post-COVID, pre-COVID. Pre-COVID. I was about to say, I was like, post-COVID, like they're going to need more. I mean, they Honestly, probably will yeah, people once are be, things are like better. People are going to be rowdy, bro. We're going to make so much money, Kashan. <laughs> uh, in his senior year at Mississippi College, though, uh, he did sustain an injury uh, and he could no longer play basketball, womp, but womp. they gave him a job coaching the junior varsity team. Didn't know colleges had a junior varsity team. I guess they do. Just imagine being like the point guard on the Mississippi College, not the University of Mississippi, the Mississippi College basketball team. Like, just go do something else, man. Don't, don't Maybe don't they're be there, there for the community. Maybe it's a sense of community. It's something fun they can do because Sean don't shit on their fun. Sorry to all the point guards at the junior varsity team of Mississippi okay, College that fair, are listening to this podcast to right now. To be fair, I don't sports, and so I don't even know what a point guard is. It's just one of the positions what I, on a like, basketball team. What do they do? They, uh, they guard the point. Damn it. Right. <laughs> uh, that's not actually true. Um, so in 1967, after that, he did graduate with a B.S., in physical education and a minor in secondary education, which he would then go on to absolutely not use at all. Not use it. Like most people who go to college, they will not use this degree at all. About to say, I have a biology degree and I am a bar manager, so I... It's like chemists. Huh? It's like chemistry. It's still science. Kind of. Not really. That's like saying anything is chemistry because everything is made out of atoms. Yeah. No, you weren't supposed to agree with me, (laughs) but you did. I never took chemistry. <laughs> oh, really? I think that's like the third time you've actually said that on this podcast. Damn it. Uh, Sorry, guys. So uh, from this, he somehow transitioned into owning a business. I think he probably wanted to do that all along, given where he went. Uh, but he, for some reason, don't know why, he chose to go- get into the motel business. Uh, People always need a place to sleep. You're right. Yeah. Yeah, the thriving motel business. In America. In the 60s. Is that because of the sex revolution? And they were like... Mm. Well, maybe that's not what I was thinking. People but need I was motels like, to bounce a wow in. Well, but back then they were like, let's pull out the map and let's Pull go. out. Aha! But they were like, let's go. Let's go with our map. And they're driving and they didn't have Wi-Fi. They didn't have data. They couldn't look up where the ni- a nice hotel is. They would be like, oh, look, there's the America's Best Inn think that's what it best value in sure and they'd pull off and then they would sleep there are, so motels on the sides of highways i would think were a more thriving business back then. what a riveting look into the the life of an average I'm 1960s american saying, traveler nina thank you i'm just saying you're like i don't know what motels were doing i think they were probably thriving so he bought a chain of motels yeah. on mississippi highways good for and the reason we mentioned this is because it was here that he first earned the reputation of a penny pincher, a skinflint, a 
another term for someone who likes to hoard money or a cheap ass a cheapskate thank you that's perfect or cheap ass i guess and instead of hiring cleaners for the rooms he would just do it himself to save money which honestly that part i'm like yeah you know work harder for your business Save yourself some money in in the long run. Yeah, like, but that's how fine. many motels did he have? How much was he cleaning? I'm not saying he did it well. Right. I'm just saying. I mean, I've been to some of those motels. They're not cleaned well. Yeah, but you figure you've got people checking out all the time. I mean, how many? It's a lot of cleaning. But uh, I don't know if he hated it or something, but he looked for ways to get out. And he really hit his stride in a coffee shop in 1983 in Mississippi when he and three other investors decided to move into the business of long distance telecommunications, a discount version of it to rival AT&T and their high prices which was the leader in long-distance telecommunications at the and time. you know what? at and still has high prices. They set up a company called Long Distance Discount Services Incorporated. Wow, what a creative name. Or LDDS for short. Uh, a company of which, in 1985, Ebers was named CEO. All right, Bernard! And Bernard, at this meeting, claimed to not know anything about the practicality of the telecommunications business, but could quote, unquote, read numbers and could tell that there was money there and that it was a good idea. This reminds me of the Jack Abramoff episode where they had the uh, lifeguard running the think tank and he was (laughs) like, I am not even qualified to run a Baskin Robbins. I don't even know what this is. That guy was the best part of that story, though. I I want to hang out with that guy specifically. He's like, I don't know anything about telecommunications, but uh, I'm going to do it. Bernie Ebers was an incredible pitch man. He could sell this idea of discount long distance communications so easily he was a natural salesman and using these skills he raised enough capital to go on a string of acquisitions they bought over 60 small telecommunication companies largely in the south and incorporated them all together into one big company and that's when ldds we're going to ditch that name really quickly became Worldcom. It's such proper. a better name. It is, honestly. The, yeah. the long distance discount services is definitely something people would make up in a coffee shop. Mm-hmm. But Worldcom, mm, it it's small. It's straight to the point. You know. Yeah. It's informative, and it's gonna be hated by so many Americans later in this story. But it sounds better. <laughs> the biggest. Acquisition. So after they grow this large group of telecommunications in the south, they own a lot of lines and things now down there. They acquire a giant of the telecommunications industry, a huge company called MCI Communications. Now, MCI Communications was making twice of LDDS's annual or WorldCom at that time, their annual revenue. So this really is like a fish eating a whale. Like, like they acquired enough capital to buy a company that is twice their size. When they don't even know how to run it. Yeah, and, I'm, and it usually goes the other way. Right. You know, so, I, I don't know. I, I think Bernard Evers was really good at buying stuff. Yeah, and about, I mean, obviously. And about convincing people that this was a valuable idea. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, they. I think he kind of just bought them and let them, like, you guys know how to do it, to some other people. 
Uh, they also, after this, tried to acquire Sprint, which was one of the biggest, obviously, in the nation as well, even bigger than MCI. Right. Uh, but regulators, both in America and in Europe, kind of uh, had some doubts about it. They they thought that it might be uh, monopolistic. Oh, maybe just a little. Yeah, you know, just a tiny bit. A tiny, tiny bit. You, oh, you want to own all of them? No. One next, T-Mobile. No. So WorldCom uh, ended their their bid into that acquisition. And now, so we have Ebers, who went from a milkman to junior varsity basketball coach to CEO of one of America's largest corporations in less than 20 years, uh, backed by his enthusiasm and his pitchability. Uh, but as is often with Rags to Rich's story, the money got to Bernie Evers. He really was the American dream, though. Yeah. <laughs> Where he gets all of the money and then fucks it over for himself. Yep. Uh, so Bernie Evers, new to money, or new to this much money at least, uh, decided to act like Shaq. There's a story actually where Shaq like signed one of his first big contracts, and he went out and bought like three really expensive BMWs and spent like all of it. Oh yeah, I think in, I've like, heard that. Story. Thirty minutes. Um, I've heard and, that story. And much like Shaq did then, um, he just fucking blew all of his money. You know what? He was not thinking small like me because the other day. We were at work and we were talking about if, because what was the jackpot right now? Like, what was it? Like $900 million or something like that for the lottery? Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, if I won that, I could go to Hawaii. And Kashan ripped me a new asshole for like three minutes. Yeah, because what a pedestrian thing to say. I could go to Hawaii on a vacation that you could probably pay for if you saved up for six months on your salary fucking now. But I don't have to save if I just win the lottery. Sorry. I don't have to save if I just win the lottery. Yeah, but you said it like you were going to go for a weekend. Not like you could have said something like I could buy a house in Hawaii. I don't want to buy a house. I just want to visit. Yeah, you could visit your fucking house. I'm just saying. In Hawaii. I'm just saying. Stop thinking so small. I'm just saying if maybe if Bernie Ebers would have thought a little more small. We would he wouldn't have been in the trouble he would have been in. Well, compared to our pittance of a salary, Bernie Ebers <laughs> in 1999. uh was slated to make $935,000 as the CEO of WorldCom. Now, that's so much money. That's a lot, right? That's not even close to what they actually make, though, because like most corporate executives, he received most of his money in bonuses. And in that year alone, Bernie Ebers took home $27 million in stock options given to him as bonuses. Oh, that's it? So that's literally like one twenty eighth of his salary is his salary, and then the other twenty seven twenty eighths is all bonuses. Is all bonuses and stock options. When you have stock options, mm-hmm. that your money's in the stock market, or it's in the stock of the company. Yeah. Oh, okay. So then, when you leave, you if you leave, you can get it. Yeah. If you leave, you can you get to keep it. It's okay. the, it's the option to acquire the stock. Got you. At a time when you leave. It's like a 401k, but on fucking roids. Okay, my dad had that. That's how he was able to retire. Mm-hmm. Not that much money, though. He wasn't the CEO. No, he was not. He was the manager. Yeah, so they... The, honestly, if you work for a big company like this, like, a lot of the time, you everyone will get stock options as bonuses. Right. Because it helps, like, you know, invest in the morale of the company. Like, you're literally invested in the company you work for. Yeah. So it helps supposedly make people work harder because if the company's doing well, they're also financially doing well right, past right. what they're getting paid. Um, but for CEOs, it's, like, insane. Uh, 
And then with the because he was starting to get this money, he started buying things like crazy. And here's a small list of the things that Bernie Ebers bought. A crawfish farm. Okay, first of all, have you had crawfish? <laughs> yes, I used to go They're hunting for crawfish. Fucking delicious. So I understand why you'd want a farm. He bought a whole fucking farm. You could just go down to the marketplace, buy some crawfish. He bought a farm. Uh, a soybean farm. Uh, and you're probably wondering already, that's a lot of farms. To start off with, that's two. Yeah, why do you need two farms? Well, because he was known as the telecom cowboy. Like a telecom cowboy. Dun, dun. Because he wore jeans to work instead of a suit, had a relatively laid back demeanor. He was basically a good old country boy who rose From to Canada. who rose to CEO. He lived in Mississippi for a long time. Oh, I that's guess. true. That's true. Also... I don't know the history of Canada. There's probably cowboys of Canada somehow. I'm sure there's rednecks in Canada. Cause oh, there's, no, there's rednecks everywhere. Because there's uh, rednecks in Australia, I came to find out. I'm sure. Yeah, no, there are. I watched a whole show about them. <laughs> I didn't know they existed. So he owns a crawfish farm, a soybean farm. He acquired the Jackson Bandits, which is a minor league hockey team. Where? Uh, Where are they a hockey team? Jacksonville. Oh, okay. Uh, a 132-foot yacht, here's the yacht name, all right, called the Aquisition instead of the Acquisition. <laughs> or maybe he said uh, Aqua like the British do, and he said Aqua, which would be weird, but at least the pun would make more sense. Like Aquafina? Do you say Aquafina? No, I say Aquafina. Good, you're right. Uh, and this led him to buy BCT Holdings, which is the owner of a yacht building and repair company. So he bought a yacht, and then he's like, you know what? I think I just, what made this? I just want to buy that. So he bought the yacht building and repair <laughs> company. Uh, he also owned the largest privately owned ranch and an expansive lodge in the town that housed WorldCom's corporate office, Clinton, Mississippi. It's a lot of shit. It's a lot, especially. That's so much upkeep. Especially Ugh. when, so this is, I'm going to say only, but this, I know it's a lot of money, but especially when you're only making $935,000 because well, all this right, stuff all costs that, a, lot a lot of more money. than $935,000. Correct. Like running, I mean, I don't know how big his crawfish farm was. I don't know how big his soybean field farm is, but like, come on, those are expensive. Like the yacht, I get. Like, all right, <laughs> Oh, fine, you know what? I get, I get the yacht. No, but the I soybean do. farm? No, oh I don't God. get it. Why do you want a soybean farm? Why do you need a soybean farm? Unless you are a soy, soybean farmer. You get tofu so easy. You just walk down to your soybean farm and grab some. Uh, <laughs> you think this go tofu grows on bushes? No. I don't know. I don't know. I don't it know doesn't grow at tofu. all. It's made out of soybeans. Yeah, I don't know how to do it. Um, I think you soak the soybeans. And and I don't know what. The funny thing is, although he is spending lavishly and just over the top in his personal life, he still retained that penny pincher mentality that he had at the motels. So that doesn't flow over into his life at all for some reason but at worldcom he was known for going into like the break rooms and like counting the coffee filters yeah. to see if people were drinking too much of the free coffee that was provided by the companies and then in a cost-cutting effort he decided to just get rid of the free coffee like he was so they made such a big coffee deal about is this already so cheap it's folgers man yeah, exactly. it's not like, expensive it's not expensive but, you know, people like that tend to be, I mean, that's how they stay, that's how the rich stay rich. They penny pinch where they can and then live the way they want to. And that's how they can do that. I mean, I guess, but yeah, he got rid of the free coffee altogether and you replace it with the, one of those vending machines where like, you know, you press it and the cup drops down and like makes you a, those coffees a shitty terrible. cappuccino or whatever. Yeah. Did and, you call it a cappuccino? <sighs> 
cappuccino. Oh. I said cappuccino. <laughs> but yeah, I know it's cappuccino, okay? Yeah. You want to point out more of my flaws? Yeah. Do you want to? Yeah, yeah, I do. I'm actually. sure you will. I can't wait. Can't wait. Can't wait. But how disappointed would you be, though, if you go into the break room and then, like, your coffee machine's gone? Womp womp. Yeah, I'd be fucking pissed off. I'd be like, I work for a multi-million dollar company and you guys can't just, like, give me some coffee? Yeah. That's bullshit. Well, if you weren't drinking so much damn coffee. They couldn't have been drinking that much. I'd like to see the coffee balance sheet. I want to know how much money they were spending on coffee. It wasn't enough to warrant this. I doubt, Bernie it, was Evers. To, I doubt it was enough to warrant it. Um. And you're probably wondering, well, with that salary and all of this expense, how was he paying for this lavish lifestyle while he was tightening the grip on the luxury of free coffee for his employees? Well, he purchased almost all of these acquisitions by securing loans from both J.P. Morgan and Citibank uh, to the tune of $408 million. That is uh, it's an astronomical it's amount. 408 of times his yearly salary. So he's really banking on the, that stock being good. All right. And not only that, he also secured the loans by underwriting them with his WorldCom stock. So that's how he's like, oh, I look, I can pay for it. Look at all the stock I have. Legal. What do you mean? Like, oh, look at all this stock I have. Like, come on. The bank is just like, yeah, that's fine. Well, yeah. Stock is usually not volatile, as volatile as this. You know, everyone looked at WorldCom as like, right. that's a big company. That's one of the best yeah, stocks to own. Still. He's got all the money of this backed up for these loans. Have yeah. you never heard of the stock market crashing? I just think it's crazy. Well, I mean, at this point, there hadn't been a really bad stock market crash since the Great Depression, I'd say. But That's they're, enough to scare me. They're about to get the next worst crash since womp, the Great womp, Depression, womp. which was the uh, dot-com bubble in the early 2000s. So during this, many companies are going belly up. All right. Oh, is that what you wrote in the notes? No, I wrote tits up. But yeah. I mean, it's the same shit. Tits. Uh, and in addition to this, the money that was supposed to be in long distance telecommunication services uh, wasn't really there. They built all of these long distance lines to help increase the availability of long distance uh, communications through telephone to people. And then people were just like, Nah, <laughs> like, uh, let me not buy this. Yeah, you're like, uh, I don't know anyone that lives in fucking Italy. Like, I, I, no, I don't need this. So there wasn't as much money as what they thought. So now they've acquired 60 telecommunication companies and then a big telecommunication company. They try to buy Sprint. And now after they build all this infrastructure, uh, no one really wants it. Oops. So what a bummer. Yeah. So the stock. Of WorldCom, which was valued at a high point of over $80 at one point, by the end of 2000, was $18 a share. Oh, my God. And it dropped from $64 that year to the 18. So that's a monumental drop in a year. And it also started to trend downwards after that again. It's basically a failing company like GameStop was before a bunch of Redditors bought a bunch of it. Yep. (laughs) And because of this radical drop in WorldCom stock, in 2001's The Banks Came A-Callin' to Ebers. Knock, knock. So this is what happened when he underwrote. This is what happens when the banks do it and they kind of see uh, shit's not going well. They right. come and they're like, all right. Hey, hey all right. Give it, time it's to pay time, up. time for you to pay back on that loan. Let's go. Now, Ebers obviously did not have this money 
in liquid. Like he didn't have the cash to, to pay them this money. He put it into his crawfish farm. So what he was going to have to do is he was going to have to liquidate some of his assets to pay them back. And in order to do that, he'd have to sell a lot of his stock in his own company of WorldCom. Now, <laughs> it's obviously never a good look when a CEO of a company starts dumping their stock. No. You know, because what happens after that, like Enron, you think it's probably the whole thing's going to go not so well pretty yeah, soon. If yeah. this, even the CEO doesn't believe in them enough right. to keep his stock. Right. Or her stock. I don't want to. Yeah. God, Kashan. You know, CEOs can be women. More of them should be women, actually. That's fine. Uh, so many of many Good analysts back, would see the CEO dump of the stock and start recommending selling immediately because of this. And that would create a fire sale, which would cause their stock to... Yeah. The, the whole company would go under, basically, if that happened. So in order to prevent this, the directors of the board of WorldCom decided on the extremely weird route of paying off Eber's loans and then just giving him a loan, giving him a loan to pay them off rather, and Eber's would instead be in debt to his own company instead of the bank. This just gives me a headache talking about it. I didn't even know. Like, I didn't even know you could do that. I guess you can because there was mean, definitely nothing. There was nothing illegal about it. But no, it just gives me a headache. So yeah, they provided a series of loans to him uh, to the, pay the bank so that he could retain a stock and not have to fire sale it. Now this did get the attention of the SEC because they were like, mm, "That's weird, right?" So they launched an informal investigation into the practices of WorldCom at that point. Now, that actually did not yield anything until a while later. So that investigation isn't going to be what gets WorldCom. But we'll talk about that in a sec. Because um, these loans did cause Ebers to lose support from the board of directors. Obviously, they were like, we got to give all of our fucking money to the CEO because he doesn't know how to handle his shit. And now the company's tanking and he's the, the leader anyway. They kind of didn't like it. The corporation's already in hot water. Uh, we talked about how their their stock was $18 a share. Well, now it's $2 a share. Oh, my God. And this, and this is in 2002, so it's not going very well. No. So Ebers was asked to resign uh, as CEO of WorldCom on April 29th, 2002. And his loans that they gave him were consolidated into one promissory note totaling 408 Point two million dollars. You gotta wonder how he slept. If I owed people that much money, I could not sleep. Especially like you're like you just got fired basically because they forced him to resign. Right, they were like, right. hey, they voted to like be like you resign. Right. And he was like, all right. Anything. Uh, so you've just been fired and now you owe your job four hundred and like oh my god two fifths of a billion dollars to your ex employer. That makes my stomach hurt just saying. That. Yeah, it's not very fun. Uh, but, however, we would soon find out that these loans were just the tip of the iceberg. They were not the worst thing going on at WorldCom because there was an entire web of accounting fraud underwriting this whole collapse of the company. There always is. So, in June 2002, an internal auditor for WorldCom, Glenn Smith, discovered an irregularity in the finances of WorldCom. And in a meeting... With auditors, a finance director explained uh, this difference of capital spending expenditures that he found to something called prepaid capacity. So I'm going to stop right there because that's a lot already. Right. And I got really deep into accounting terms and me and Nina are not accounting aficionados. Oh, God, Nina no. doesn't even know how to do taxes. No. I barely know how to do taxes. No. I use TurboTax even yep. though it's a ripoff. But I did do a deep dive into some of these terms. Okay. 
And teach like us, Kashan. And I'd like to share some of that with you. Help me, teacher. No. <laughs> Kashan. Stop. Mr. K- Mr. Kashan, I'm confused. Mr. B, I'm confused. You're being so weird. <laughs> Stop it. We're not role playing. <laughs> Like, teacher child, that's not going to happen. So just learn as an adult. Uh, So, (laughs) how is a capital expense different from an operational expense? This is going to be key to how this all worked, okay? Um, So a capital expense is when you make an expense into an asset. Now, an an asset is something that will provide an ROI or a return on investment in the future. So it's something you hold on to that can then be sold later. Yes. Uh, to make you money back. Oh, my assets. <laughs> who's that? Who's who's that an impression of? No, Nina? it's just like anybody who has assets. Yes, that is uh, that is Nina's famous impersonation of anybody who has assets. Yeah. Uh, or they're like, oh, you got like this is so inappropriate, but people sometimes will tell me like, oh, you got nice assets, which means like they think I have nice boobs and butt. Great. And I'm like, that's inappropriate. So a. Uh, Capital expense would be something like buying a building or equipment, something that could be garner that could garner value and be sold later. All right. And an operating expense is an expense that will not provide a tangible ROI. So it's that's like salaries or office supplies. Like, I mean, you could make the argument like, oh, but if I pay a salary, the return on investment is like my fucking employee doing some work and then I get the work back. It, it doesn't, you can't sell that later. It, no. It's not how that works. No, like apartment buildings, a house. Yeah, and like paper, car. like you're going to use the paper and it's going to be gone. Like it's yeah, not, you're not reselling printer paper. Yeah, it is not, it's not a capital expense. It's an operational expense. Right. So prepaid capacity. That was the term they referenced earlier when they noticed a difference in capital spending expenditures. They were different from one sheet to the next sheet, and they didn't know why. And he said that it was because of prepaid capacity. Now, no one in that room of highly skilled accountants knew what the fuck they were talking about when he said prepaid capacity. No one had heard that term before. And they pressed the finance director who said that, oh, that's just that's attributed to prepaid capacity. He didn't know what it meant. Either. He's like, ah, just let me see this bullshit. Someone will believe me. Uh, <laughs> he was just said, I, that's how I was told to reference these differences in, in the capital expenses. Yeah. Uh, now, the internal audit team obviously was like, mm, fishy. Uh, so they went into their accounting system and looked for every transaction that referenced uh, prepaid capacity, which started turning up a bunch of entries in their system where accounts were moving from one quarter balance sheet to another quarter's balance sheet. So large amounts of income were moved from the third quarter of 2001 to the first quarter of 2002. Oh, you can't do that. No, you can't. Well, you can, but it's not legal. It's not legal. Uh, So sensing something was weird... Uh, the auditors brought questions about what these exactly were because they still didn't really know. They were like, why are they moving this money to the CFO, Scott Sullivan? And he said that they were related to the leases they had on their telephone lines. So they didn't own these telephone lines. They leased them from other companies. Okay. And he said that he was counting these as a capital expense uh, because the cost of the lease stayed the same, even if the revenue from their usage dropped or fluctuated so the price that they paid for them was always the same but uh the money they get back from them was constantly different like revenue could drop but the price they pay for them is the same so that requires another big explanation all right and for this one i have a fun example 
Yay. All right. So this is something, the use of this to spread out a cost over time, mm-hmm. which is why they could be able to move something from the third quarter of one to the first quarter of the next and on and on, is something called accrual. Accrual. There we go. Accrual. Accrual accounting. So for this example, let's say uh, we know a person named Mary. Okay. And Mary owns an ice cream shop that pulls in $10,000 of revenue a year. All right. So Mary buys an ice cream maker to help make the ice cream faster. Mm-hmm. And that costs $7,500. Okay. And the machine's supposed to last for five years, normally. So this is a capital expense, as we talked about. This machine is an asset held by the ice cream shop. So instead of reporting this expense in one year, which would show uh, lower profits of $2,500 right, that year. because you're going 10000 Yeah, you see 10000 10000 2500 10000 10000 you're like. What the heck? Yeah, what's that? An accepted accounting principle allows you to spread the cost of a capital expenditure over its suspected lifetime. Okay. In this case, five years. Okay. So you um, divide 7500 by five, which is 1500 a year. And you spread that out for all the five years that it's supposed to last. Okay. And you can report a profit of 8500 instead. Okay. And the reason this is accepted is because it actually gives people a better idea of what's going on in the company. Because if you just reported it all at once, it would right. look like they made no money that year. Yeah, and they'd be like, what the heck? Yeah, but they know well, we're going to keep it for a long time and we're going to make money on it. Like there's going to be a return on investment of it every year. So you can spread it out like that instead of all at once. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah, and this only applies to capital expenses, though. It has to be an asset. Okay. You can't spread something like salaries over this time because that, well, right. that really wouldn't make any sense. It's, right. it's not no. a tangible thing that you can get rid of later or sell back. And the way that you can match uh, a reven- the revenue from an asset that you acquired mm-hmm. uh, to its cost over time is something called the matching principle. All right, now with that big, long... Description out of the way. Uh, The very astute of you may have already noticed something wrong with this scenario. The telephone lines that WorldCom are using are not an asset. Right, they're leasing them. They don't own them. Yeah, they're simply renting them. So that money goes into keeping them, or the money that goes into keeping them, can't be a capital expense. No, it needs to be an operating expense. It's an operating expense, exactly. They don't, like, if they owned the lines, that would be one mm-hmm. thing. If they owned the infrastructure and they could sell it later, that would be one thing, but, right. they, but they don't. Right. They lease them. So after looking into it, the internal auditing crew came to the same conclusion. And there's not any accounting standard that supports this movement, even though, like the CFO said, he's like, well, it's justified because, you know, the, the price for them stays the same, so I can move it. I can move it out right? because revenue won't mm-hmm. match it every year. So with the matching principle, I should be able to do that. That's no. not, that's not true. He was just making up some, some hoopla. I mean, it sounds, it, you know, a le- you know, if you want to. Honestly, really interesting way to justify it. But yeah, if you, if you just do some basic stuff like that, you're like, no, no. <laughs> that's exactly what they did. They were like, uh, no. And so it's not supported by any accounting standard. And they actually went to the accounting department and they basically said, yeah, we just kind of make up the margins. Like we, we were just told to do it. So we, yeah, we could just like, yeah, you know. So we just kind of did it. And the, make it up. And the lower accountants, obviously, they didn't know what they were doing. They were just told to like uh, do this and, and like make the ba- and and balance it. it. And they were like, yeah, OK, sure, I, I will. They didn't know what they were doing. Well, they didn't know what they were doing. But it turns out Ebers and Sullivan did know what they were doing. Well, of course they knew what they were doing. So with, in multiple closed door meetings, Ebers and Sullivan came up with this whole idea because 
as the stock was dropping after the dot-com bubble, they realized that their numbers were going down. Right. The, the company was floundering, and especially Ebers had a high personal interest in not letting their stock value drop because of how much money he had invested in their stock Whoa, right. and how much his debt depended on it. Right. So they decided to do this creative accounting trick to cover their ass ets. <laughs> there you Good go. one, Kashan. Yeah. Well, I didn't anticipate you making the joke for me like five minutes ago. Sorry, I didn't know. I didn't know you were going to make this ass joke. No, it's fine. It's low-hanging fruit. I get it. It is. So moving these expenses from operating expenses to capital expenses and spreading them out uh, reduced costs to the company and turned the net losses of the entire company into gains during these quarters and their stock value could still increase just like what it did with Enron. Um, And this was all in hopes to stabilize and meet Wall Street numbers to keep analysts referring their stock as a buy. Good job, guys. Uh, And as a result, in 2001, the company inflated their profit by $3.8 billion. It's so crazy. I know. And they recorded a $1.4 billion profit (laughs) that year instead of what would surely be a loss. They're like, it's opposite day. (laughs) They're just like, ugh. You know, they're just freaking out. They realize their company is is going under. All their stock's going to be worthless. So they cook the books to make it look like they were making money. But not very well. Like, I mean, Enron did it better. Oh, so, yeah, definitely. I mean, whatever. Um, <laughs> I don't think I'd ever say Enron did it better, but I guess I, guess I, mean, I did. They I did, guess though. We got they're better liars, for they sure. They knew, they knew how to cheat the system better. They sure did. So uh, in July of 2002, based on the findings of the Internal Audit Committee, a WorldCom publicly admitted to nearly $4 billion in accounting misdoing. <laughs> Which would later inflate to $11 billion upon scrutiny. It's just, I'm sorry. It's just, I want to keep, the only word that comes to mind is mind-blowing. It's just crazy. Like, that you could get away with it for that long, lying that much. Yeah, they, they used this accounting technique to falsely inflate their profits by $11 billion over the course of, like, two years. So, what's really interesting is that this... I mean, I'm sure that other things have happened since then, but it just seems like a lot of these sorts of, of um, you know, when we cover these stories, they're all around the early 2000s, and it's really interesting. They did. Well, it was the same thing we talked about with, like, Bernie Madoff and how he was exposed because of the 2008 recession. Right. It's basically... Oh, it's because of the bubble pop. Yeah, when markets are going down, companies are either... Um, manipulated into doing this when they're going down instead of dying. Right. Or they were doing it already. And when, you know, stock goes down, everyone sells it. And now their schemes come out. Right. So the dot-com bubble is really what caused some of of the stuff. Also, because both Enron and WorldCom uh, introduced new legislature, which helped prevent it, which we'll talk about at the end. Um, So obviously, they just publicly admitted to all this wrongdoing. They contacted the SEC the the SEC Commission. God damn it! I always do that. The (laughs) SEC. The C stands for Commission. God damn it! Um, It's like the uh, oh shit. What is it? The uh, damn it! I wanted to say ATM, but that's not the ATM machine. I always say or RIP in peace. RIP in peace. The one you see all the time. They said they were going to have to rework their entire earnings sheets for the last year for all of 2001 and the first quarter of 2002. And because of all this and the company was already not at a good place, they were like millions of dollars in debt on top of everything already. Their stock was less than $2 now. It was junk status. Um, 
they filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, and then this bankruptcy uh, prompted legal investigations into the executives because also they, you know, they had a meeting with Congress. That always happens. Same thing with Enron. Same thing with uh, DuPont. We've, we've seen all of it. And they focused specifically on Ebers and Sullivan. Uh, and Sullivan was fired later when they, they asked him to resign after all this came out, and he didn't. He was like, no. And they, and they fired him, obviously. You can't make me. <laughs> uh, we can. You're fired. You Sullivan. can't fire me. I quit. No, we just we just asked you to quit. And, and you didn't want to, so we're firing you. Yeah. Great. Womp womp. <laughs> um, so Sullivan pled guilty to counts of conspiracy and securities fraud. And flipped and cooperated with investigations because that's always how these work. There's oh, one yeah. guy who's like, all right, I'll tell you everything. Just don't put it's me in jail like, for too long. Um, oh, what the heck was that guy's name? The key. Rick Sl- Rick Singer. When he was like, yeah, I fucking did it. Here's everybody's names. Yeah. He's like, mm, yes. Yep. Uh, I will comply. Don't put me in jail for too long. I'm but too I'm cute in- for jail. And too white and too rich as what most of these are. So ever over and show me your prison purse. <laughs> Here it is. He opens like a coin purse and a bunch of quarters fall out. Out of his asshole. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, my God. Could you imagine if you could poop quarters, how awesome that would be? I wish I could poop quarters. I don't want to ever live inside your head. I just was thinking just of how... Just the thoughts like, that come in there <laughs> and you're like... I was just thinking like... You're like, that uh, one. <laughs> that's the one I'm going to say. What if you could poop quarters? But you know how what nice if you it could would poop be? quarters? It would be so convenient because I always have to use quarters for laundry. And if I could just shit quarters, oh, it'd be so easy. God, with these ideas, you are going to be a Pulitzer Prize winning author someday. No, I'm not. I can feel it. Stop patronizing me. What if I could poop quarters? How I Got Rich by Nina Curran. I'm happy. It just would solve I'm a lot of problems. It. No, do you know what inflation is, Nina? Because you'd learn pretty quick if you could just shit money. All right. So, uh, be cool though. No, Ebers stood trial and in 2005 was convicted for fraud, conspiracy, and filing false documents with regulators and was sentenced to one of the longest prison sentences for white collar crime 25 years. That's like your whole life, Kashan. It is, plus one year. That's my life. Now, Sullivan, in accordance with his plea deal, was sentenced to five years for the same charges. And stockholders, they were also a big loser in list. They lost out. <laughs> you're big, you're like, I don't know why I thought that was funny. You're like, they're a big loser in this. They're the biggest loser. They're the biggest loser. In this, uh, $30 billion is what they lost of what they invested. And $180 billion, if you also count the profits that they would have made had the company stayed where it was without the... The fraud. Now, a class action lawsuit provided a settlement of $6 billion, 90% of which was returned to the stockholders, but that's like, that's nothing. One of the guys uh, gave a testimonial where he had invested $100,000 of stock in to it. And because of this, he got like $3,000 back. Oh my God. So, what a bad day. So, it's not, not great. You know, oh, Jesus. and a lot of people like have not recovered. Like if you had like no. this was a big retirement portfolio. That's stock. Who I just feel so bad for is these people who have their retirement in these stocks and then they're yeah. just and everyone who worked there, too, God, obviously had a stock investment. So much. 
uh, in the company. Yeah, and it was a dividend-paying stock, which means they'll they'll pay stockholders a, a price based on the amount of shares you own every year or two. So it like it was really good for retirement. Yeah. Uh, age people because of that, and they lost out on all their money in it. Uh, and we said earlier that some legislature came out of this, mm-hmm. and it did something called the uh, Sarbanes-Oxley Act, uh, came following both the Enron collapse and the WorldCom collapse, that provided just a couple of these measures, uh, increasing the prevalence of internal audit committees, uh, mandating internal controls for public companies, uh, preventing more than two board members from being certified public accountants. Don't know why that was a thing, but it's in there. I'm sure it is, though. someone could let us know if you do know and you're more versed in uh, accounting this or shit. economics than us. Please send us a message Help. about it at whitecollarsredhands at gmail.com. Increasing criminal penalties for security fraud and mandating companies to change audit partners every five years. So. Now you need a new auditor every five years. You can't be paying them off under the table like Enron. Yeah. So uh, in 2006, WorldCom, then renamed back to the giant they swallowed, MCI, was acquired by none other than Verizon. Can you hear me now? <laughs> Good. <laughs> uh, they bought WorldCom and incorporated them in. And obviously Verizon, now one of the biggest, biggest in the game. Yeah, they are. I think they might actually be the biggest now. I didn't look it up, uh, yeah. but now that Sprint and T-Mobile merged, merged, maybe not. I, I, don't, I don't really know. know. They're they're close. One of two, let's say, because it's yeah. definitely between those two. Yeah. Uh, so Ebers served 14 years of his 25 year sentence, but was released in December 2019 due to his declining health. Uh, he suffered from dementia and anemia, and he died in February 2020. So also kind of recently. COVID. We don't know that. <laughs> it didn't say anywhere online what he died of. It seemed that no one super cared. I just don't really understand why he was allowed to leave just because he was dying. <sighs> yeah, I don't, I don't understand that either, which is what I said to uh, Jesse the other day, actually, my girlfriend. Uh, I told her, I was like, I don't understand how, like, everyone else who's sentenced to their time in prison, you just die in prison. Right. Why do you get to go? But multiple white-collar criminals, they've been released towards the end because of poor health. Well... I mean, you know, we talk about this a lot, how people who commit white-collar crimes, they don't serve what they deserve to serve. No. And it's not, I mean, you know, it's, it go, we can sit here and go, well, I don't understand why he got let go. But it's also like, well, why did Jack Abramoff only get to serve four years? And it's like, why do these yeah. people get these slaps on the wrist and not have to um, serve their time? And that's why he got to die in the comfort of wherever he died his and family. not his jail cell. Yeah. And so the judge who did make that ruling did say basically um, if keeping him in prison would get these people their money back who lost money, then it would be an easy choice. Uh Uh-huh. Sure. But because his quality of life was, I guess by this point he like wasn't really a person anymore. Right. So since his quality of life was so low to just, it would be unhuman like, I guess to keep him in prison. Yeah. But like how many other people have you treated inhumanely? Yeah. How many other people has the justice That's the system? Just, this, this is another thing where we've talked about this a couple of times this season. Um, now that we're expanding our ideas on, on white collar crime and things that um, I think I don't think that judge made the wrong choice because I, I do think well, I get it. But I do think it, it is probably the right thing to do. But the fact that they would do the wrong thing and so many other choices that so many other judges right, would make the wrong even, choice for people that aren't these people. 
And the only thing that, that it, makes, it, it, it's not fair. No, it's not fair. The only thing that makes me feel a little bit better about it is that he did have dementia and he probably would not be, he wouldn't have the capacity to commit these sorts of crimes again. Yeah. Whereas a lot of these people who've gotten out early, we've watched them commit the same crime yeah. afterwards. I.e. Jack Abramoff. Yeah. Like we talked about it two weeks ago. He yeah. just got right back into committing the exactly. same crimes. And so. You know, in that respect, I go, okay, fine. But at the same time, it's like how many other people have gone to jail over drug charges or mm-hmm. not other nonviolent crimes and then... Testify. Yeah, had the same exact problem and then died in jail because it... Because no one gave a shit about them. Yeah. Because they weren't rich. Right. Or they weren't white. Yep. Or they weren't privileged in some other way. Right. Uh, that a judge... Could, couldn't take pity on them. Right. You know? Bullshit. So uh, that's it. Obviously, the story ends with... Uh, Him dying. The company gone and uh, Bernard Ebers... Also gone. ...dying in 2020. And now only scars are remained on the lives of the people that this WorldCom scandal affected over 20 years ago now. It's crazy. So... Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. We got a lot of uh, really fun stuff... Uh, coming up, including yeah. our first fan-submitted episode. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, we had one episode, the Michelson Sandona episode, was recommended by one of Nina's friends, but this is a fully fan-submitted episode. Yeah, it doesn't, we don't know who he is. We don't personally know this man. Or person. Person. Uh, I don't know. So, uh, thank you so much. We'll announce our name when we do the recording. I'm really, yeah. I'm really excited for it. Um, and if you have a suggestion, something you'd like us to cover or you think more people should know about, then please uh, follow this person's lead and send it to whitecollarsredhands at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. It really it really brightens up my day. Yeah, no, it warmed my heart. You know, doing art can be really fucking hard sometimes it when is. you go on and, and you see like a bad review right. or you're listening to an episode and you think, why the fuck did I say that? You know, oh, I do that all the time. It's. It can be hard, but when we get messages like that and people that support us and we know yeah. like listening to this podcast, it helps us so much. It feels really good. And on that note, please leave us a review. We love it. An honest one. An honest review, especially if you're listening on iTunes. No other format does it, but uh, statistics show that 79% of you are listening on iTunes. And we'd love if you could drop by and leave us uh, a little comment. Pr- yeah, a comment, preferably a good rating. Um, as a higher rating does help us reach more listeners, grow our platform uh, to help us entertain people and mm-hmm. also help other people, just like we are, learn about the importance of the issues of crimes committed. Uh, by the rich because we yes. really we're normal people we're learning about this just as much as you are listening oh, yeah. to us talk I about like, it yeah yep uh so we love having people jump on and, and help it helping us grow that being said if you go on and you leave one star and you say too much commentary i will literally throw a fit for 30 minutes after reading reading uh, yours because that is literally the thing we get constantly we've cut it down we get to the subject by five minutes i think they're listening to the first episodes we're sorry we were new we were learning we were learning but if you listen to our episodes now and think we don't get there fast enough i would just disagree with you and also if you just leave nasty reviews about my voice i can't change that luckily so. you haven't got one of those in a while so yeah well those really affected me so, so that's nice uh also, you could support us by following our social media platforms, yes. uh, facebook.com slash white collars, red hands, or our Twitter at white collars pod. Or you could follow our Instagram over at white collars underscore red hands. 
So uh, that's it for this week. Thanks, guys, so much for being along uh, on this ride with us. And we'll see you next week on another episode of White, White Collars, Red, Red Hands. Hands. I fucked it up.